and welcome to the Field Notes podcast from Arosha. I'm Bryony Loveless and I'm a researcher with Arosha. And I'm Peter Harris and I've been with Arosha from the beginning when we established a field study centre and bird observatory in the south of Portugal in 1983. Now, we all know that the rapid thinning of life on Earth and the climate crisis can often feel overwhelming. So it's our hope that in this podcast you'll hear some remarkable and original perspectives from people we know who are working to care for creation around the world. It's not so difficult. If we give nature just some more space, she will bounce back spectacularly. And I have seen it myself with my own eyes and everybody will benefit. In these times of global pessimism, I remain hopeful. Welcome back to Series 2 of the Field Notes podcast. It's great to be here after a little break. Um, We had the absolute pleasure today of speaking to Enrique Sala, who's a former university professor who describes himself as somebody who saw that he was writing the obituary of the ocean. And so he quit academia to become an explorer in residence for the National Geographic. And he was phenomenal, wasn't he, Peter? Yeah, he's a really wonderful human being. He's had the most eye-popping experiences all around the world, which he is able to convey in this wonderful way to us. So he's not just an explorer, he's a communicator. He's somebody who's had a huge impact. I mean, as he goes on to say he and his team have been responsible for protecting 6.5 million square kilometers of the ocean. That's, that's twice the size of India Mm. in a, in a relatively short time with the pristine seas project. And so it was a, it was a huge privilege. Yeah. Enrique now works for the National Geographic on the pristine seas program. And he tells in us in this, in his podcast, a number of phenomenal stories. I think he really painted a picture about what life is like in the ocean um, in a way that, you know, I, I hopefully one day we'll be able to experience it, but I've never, I've never yet been down to the depths of the ocean. Have you seen any of this, Peter, anything he's describing? Could you relate to it? Not really. I'm a shallow water person myself. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen some of it in coral reefs around the world and things, but nothing like that. But I think, it, as you say, it was an unexpected picture and some of his answers were unexpected because there's been this sudden wide awareness now of the state of the oceans as we as we know them to be so polluted and so affected by plastic. And our own marine team is working on microplastics and have alerted us to the presence of them. And, and Enrique talks about that. But it, it's a view on the ocean that we may not be familiar with, particularly its resilience and the amazing benefits that it can very rapidly give to human communities if it's allowed to recover. And and so it's a it's as we hoped for this podcast, an original and hopeful perspective, which was our whole point, wasn't it? Right at the beginning. Mm. Yeah. And Enrique really does speak with um a lot of hope, even though um he's not someone who would necessarily identify himself as a Christian, which is something we talk about a bit in the podcast. Um we do talk a lot about yeah about faith and and faith in humanity <laughs> as well as faith in God. Yeah. And in that sense, it's a true Arosha conversation. It's a conversation for all comers. This isn't uh, Christians chatting amongst themselves and Arosha isn't that either. And so 
we had a huge amount to learn from his perspectives and it was really valuable. Mm. And you can, if you're interested by what uh, Enrique says, you can watch his TED talk, which is online and also his book called The Nature of Nature. So let's uh, dive in, excuse the pun. And um, here is Enrique Sala. Well, Enrique, thanks so much for joining us on the Field Notes podcast today. Um, where are you calling us from? Thank you so much for having me. I'm calling from Washington, D.C. Oh, great. Have you lived there a long time? I spend more time here than I would like because I like to spend more time mm. in nature. But uh, <laughs> yes, I've been uh, based in Washington, D.C. for 12 years now. And can you tell us a bit about what you do for your work? Because I saw your job title and I just thought, my word, that sounds like a very exciting job. Well, yeah, the job title is an oxymoron, actually. It's Explorer in Residence. And explorers are not supposed to be in residence. They are <laughs> supposed to be out there exploring. But it, basically, I am a recovering academic. I used to be a professor at the University of California in San Diego. And my job was to teach and to do research. And my research was on human impacts in the ocean, the impacts of fishing, climate change. But one day I realized that all I was doing was writing in the obituary of the ocean. I was writing more scientific papers in peer-reviewed journals with more precision and more data, basically <laughs> reinforcing what we already knew, which is that we are killing ocean life all around the world at a pace that is totally unsustainable. So that day I decided to quit academia. I took some time off to think about what I wanted to do next. And I came up with this idea of uh, going to the last wild places in the ocean and help to get them protected in national parks in the sea before, before it's too late. That's why I came to National Geographic Society because it was an organization with 130 years of history with uh, amazing experience in exploration, research, storytelling, but also in education. And I thought that combining those assets, we could help to protect these vital places in the ocean. And I think the project is called Pristine Seas. Is that right? W would you like to tell us a bit more about that? Because it's already had quite an impact, hasn't it? I think you must be happy with your choice to, to leave academia. I have never regretted living academia. <laughs> academia has an important role in society, of course. You know, we need those uh, researchers fully dedicated, but research alone is not enough. And I'm very glad that I left. And I had to unlearn a few things when I left the university and I had to learn many others. I had to unlearn that expectation that is prevalent in the ivory, in the ivory tower that the job of the scientist is just to provide data and then enlightened decision makers will read the papers and understand the data and make rational decisions. <laughs> you know, a few people have got, uh, have received Nobel prizes in economics, just basically dispelling that, that myth. Um, and I had to learn about economics and finance, politics, negotiation, persuasion, rhetoric, film production, storytelling, and so many things that are needed to be able to apply information to influence 
persuade decision makers to to make the right choices, which in this case is creating these marine reserves, these protected areas in the ocean. So we, when I started, I was alone. Pristine Seas was just me. And over the years, I grew, I built this team organically. And now we have scientists, economists, policy experts, communication experts, uh, film production team, etc. So we use this combination of expeditions, research, media and policy work and work with local communities and, and indigenous peoples to help to save these places in, in these marine reserves before it's too late. And you had a, a very big idea, which I saw on your TED talk, along with, I don't know how many million people, but anyway, it's encouraging. People have really gone for that. This this very big, bold idea of putting the non-territorial waters of the earth into a completely different situation. Can you tell us a bit more about that and what makes sense behind that economically? Because at first off, you think to yourself, well, that's never going to happen. Yeah, well, basically, there are two oceans when it comes to, to management. We have what's called the exclusive economic zones. These are the, the jurisdictional uh, waters that every coastal country um, reg, um, owns. This is 200 nautical miles from shore. Is, these are the, the country's waters. Beyond the 200 miles, we have the waters be, beyond national jurisdiction, also called the high seas, the international waters that belong to no one. And of course, if they belong to no one, you can imagine it's like the Wild West because um, mo something that people may, may not know is that most of the problem affecting the ocean, our human activities affect mostly countries' waters within the two, 200 miles. For example, 96% of the fish catch from the ocean comes from the 200 miles of countries. Only 4% of the fish come from the high seas, from the international waters. Now, now the international waters encompass about 60% of the ocean. So it's most of the ocean, but they provide um, only 4% of the fish. But those fishes are high value fish. They are, tend to be fishes like tuna or sharks that have yeah, high value in, in markets. And what, so we wanted to figure out, well, what happens in the high seas really? Who's fishing there? What are the economics of fishing in the high seas? And what are the, the food security implications? And what we found were several things. One, again, an insignificant fraction of the fish is caught in the high seas. Two, those fishes are not essential for global food security because they are mostly high-valued fish that are exported and consumed in food-secure countries, in rich countries, um, plus you know, China. Uh, three, the, economically, it does not make sense to fish in the high seas because the costs of fishing are greater than the, the revenues. So to, be, to make these fisheries operational, governments use a lot of public money to subsidize them. And what we found was that half of the fishing in the high seas would not be profitable without government subsidies. Four, we found that that fishing in the high seas also would not be profitable without slave labor, basically. 
modern slavery, people who are uh, thrown, mostly from Southeast Asia, people who are thrown on, on boats, their passports are confiscated, and they are kept at sea for sometimes two, three, four years. They are treated, treated like slaves. And there are murders at sea. It, it's it's the lawless uh, ocean. Um, so this is why we realize that fishing in the high seas does not make any sense. Only a handful of companies benefit from that catching tuna and sharks. The world does not benefit. Developing countries have no benefit. It's only a few companies that uh, capture the benefits of, the, of this thing, which is part of the global commons. So we thought, well, why don't we protect all of the high seas from fishing? So then with other colleagues, we looked at what would happen then. What would happen is that a few countries that now are monopolizing fishing in the high seas because they have large industrial fleets would lose, no quotation marks, but many developing countries would benefit because those fish that are not caught in the high seas would grow larger, they would produce more eggs, and they could be caught by developing countries within the 200 miles. So helping enhance their food security locally, right? So basically we would be concentrating the costs from those who are not, who get away with murder today, and we would spread the benefits. So what's not to like about that? The problem is that, of course, those who now, those few that reap all the benefits are very powerful. And of course, they don't want to lose a penny. Enrique, could you tell us a bit more about, you just described the high seas as being quite a lawless place. I'm wondering whether you've had, what your experience of the high seas has been. Have you been there and experienced some of that? Um, and have you spent much time there? I haven't, but a friend of mine has. Ian Urbina is this fantastic uh, journalist. He's written many articles for the New York Times and other top publications. And he recently published a book, called, a book called The Outlaw Ocean. Ian Urbina is absolutely recommendable book. He's been to all these places. He's been on boats. He's interviewed people. And the stories are horrifying. Blatant human rights abuses. I mean, it's criminal what this uh, um, cruise uh, with these captains and, and these companies are doing, not only to the ocean, but to people. It's really, really criminal. This type of o operation should be absolutely uh, banned and prosecuted. Um, but our work has been mostly in, in the 200 miles of exclusive economic zones, because when it comes to protection, it is so much, I wouldn't say easier, it's much less difficult to work with a single government than having to deal with international agreements. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting, you're talking about the real sharp end of environmental work sometimes where you get into these kinds of acute conflicts. And as you've said, there are criminal interests, there's all sorts going on, isn't there? And I, I just wonder if Ian or, or you come to that have had some of those moments in your own work where you've really been a little bit at risk and, and what it's made you think about the value of, of what you're doing. Yeah, Ian especially has had um, <laughs> serious experiences and he's been on boats with military protection, etc. On our case, we have seen, especially in, in some areas like the Eastern Tropical Pacific, we've seen the interaction of criminal activities 
in this case is fishing and drug trafficking. Um, so we, we have uh, seen instances where uh, fishing boats are used for f- refueling these big uh, fast boats that uh, traffic with drugs in, in several countries. Using satellite data, we've seen what's supposed to be artisanal fishing boats going out from their island on a straight line, spending an hour out there and then coming back on a straight line. Right. And the satellite inform- the satellite data allows us to see when mm-hmm. ships meet other ships. So there is a lot of transshipments at sea. Yeah. And there are lots of, lots of criminal activities going on. Yeah. In our, um, in our Portuguese port locally, they call that going fishing for chocolate. And, uh, and we saw it when we were doing nocturnal studies with storm petrels and we suddenly had an inflatable land on the beach just by the rocks where we had our nets up and the police were up on the cliff. And anyway, yeah, I think sometimes field work takes you out into places and at times of day or night, which typically belong to other people and all kinds of things happen, don't they? So, Wow, yeah. fishing for chocolate. <laughs> it's not the kind of fishing for chocolate I'm used to. <laughs> Um, Enrique, I wanted to ask you a slightly different question about, um, because obviously a lot of people listening to this podcast won't necessarily have had the opportunity to see the high seas or to see these pristine seas that you've been working on. I'm wondering if you could tell me about the moment that you decided you wanted to leave academia. Was there something that you saw or was it building over time? Um, And kind of, yeah, just give a sense of sense to the people listening about um, how bad the situation is in the seas. It was building over time. It was going back to these places and seeing how they were being depleted, how marine life was declining over time. But actually the epiphany that the moment that really pushed me was the National Geographic magazine. I was in my office at the university at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in my office overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And I went to the mail room and ah, the National Geographic magazine. That was in the, uh, in the mid 2000s, early, early or mid 2000s. Um, and there was this story. I opened the magazine and there was this double page, black and white, with a skinny guy with shorts, with a stick, walking on a swamp covered by a thick canopy, followed by two Africans, completely overloaded and looking exhausted. And it said, mega transect. And I thought, wow, what is this? And it was one of uh, three stories that the magazine published about this guy, Mike Fay. A fellow now a fellow uh, National Geographic explorer and a really good friend, he, he and a group of pygmies walked from Congo to throughout Gabon, all the way to the coast of Gabon, for a year and a half, fifteen hundred miles, across the wildest tracts of forest in Africa. He looked at, at maps. He did the route. Uh, he planned the route very well, and he went through places where there were no roads. No villages, no fire, no humans, nothing. Humans have never been there. There were no signs of human habitation ever. Even those people living on the forest in Congo and Gabon that he, <clears throat> he took with him, you know, after um, a couple of days away from their villages, they had no idea where they were going. <clears throat> so Mike was guiding them with a compass. And, and they, it's incredible walking 
on sandals in a short for a year and a half. They found the most pristine forests left in Africa. New populations of gorillas, low-lying gorillas, new populations of chimpanzees. They were so naive, they came to, to the camp to look at them and like, who, who are these people? New meadows with forest elephants. It was extraordinary. When they got to the beach in Gabon, this, and Gabon is a country that where the, most of the coast is uninhabited, they saw elephants and leopards on the beach and hippos surfing in the ocean. Extraordinary. So he, after the trip, then he met with the president of Gabon and showed him a selection of photographs of what they found and told him the story of what they found. Said, wow, this is amazing. What is this? This is in your country. So he convinced the president to create 13 national parks. And he did that with one stroke of a pen with his buddy, the conservationist uh, Lee White, who is now the Minister of Environment, Forest, and Climate Change of, of Gabon. 13 national parks at once. I said, wow, this is what I want to do in the ocean. So that story of Mike Fay in National Geographic, coincidentally, <laughs> is what really pushed me. That gave me a huge nudge for me to uh, make the decision to leave academia. Well, if I can say so, I think, uh, Enrique, your story has been doing a bit of that. And I, I saw it firsthand uh, when we first met, actually, at the Vatican, you remember? Yes. And well. I wanted to, I wanted to, but that was a funny time. You remember that Cardinal's hat in the street when I, he dropped it and I gave it him back? Anyway, that was all, it was a lot of fun, wasn't it? But Cardinal Turkson. Yeah, that's the man <laughs> without his hat. Yeah, he shouldn't have dropped it in the street. I was really tempted to keep it, but we were rammed in that <laughs> restaurant and it was burning in my pocket. So I thought I'd better give it him back. But anyway, um, <laughs> the, the, you, you, we met at the Vatican on that thing and I, and I heard those stories and I saw the impact they were having on people. And I've seen what's happened to that TED talk. And, but you use that word epiphany. And, and I, and because of that context where we met, I wanted, again, I think many of the people who listen to this podcast are, are wrestling really with what are the implications of their faith or no faith, uh, because Arosha is everybody, uh, on environmental work and, and it, particularly around the question of hope and what that means. So can I ask you what your own, how your own faith has impacted this effort and whether you, when you use a word like epiphany, it has a, even a bigger resonance than just kind of a, a light going on. Yes. No, that's a, that's a great question. Last year, was it last year? Yes. Last year, the, you know, the COVID pre COVID time is a little nebulous. I published uh, my new book, the nature of nature, why we need the wild. And I wrote a chapter about the moral imperative for protecting nature. And, you know, I was born and raised in Catalonia in Spain, which is a Catholic culture, you know, but I was baptized, etc. But my family was not very practicing. We went to church only for baptisms, weddings and, and funerals. Right. So I, I've, I've never, I've never, I have never been part of an organized religion. But that those conferences that I attended with you in in, in Rome, Peter, on, on the Laudato Si, on Pope Francis encyclical, really, really uh, impacted me. Because I thought that, wow, you know, the Catholic Church has an incredible reach. And Pope Francis has an incredible power of, of impact. 
So reading the encyclical, I thought it was the most extraordinary and beautiful document advocating for the presentation, the preservation, protection, and restoration of our common home, not just for nature, but because of people. And, you know, it, I, I feel myself now a little more of a pantheist, right? I, I, I think that there is divinity in life. There is divinity in, in the trees here outside my window and the little, uh, the red male cardinal bird that is uh, you know, singing his, <laughs> his lungs out to get that female excited. And, you know, the butterflies, I, I, the ocean, I, I feel that there is it, what's divine, what is unique is, is life, this, 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 this precious gift, this planet we live on. And, you know, as I wrote in my book, it doesn't matter if you are uh, religious, if you are a Jew or a Catholic or a Protestant or a Muslim or you are, you have some other kind of um, uh, faith, like uh, a Buddhism, or you're a scientist. It doesn't matter. Everybody would agree or should agree that we live in a miracle. You know, this is the only place in the known universe where there is complex life, intelligent life. So if you are <clears throat> a Catholic, nature is God's creation. And uh, like Pope Francis wrote in the encyclical, if you want to show your love for God, you better, you know, you have to respect his, his creation. You know, it's, it's a miracle. Over 9 million species of plants and animals and probably a trillion with a T, trillion, you know, different types of microbes and viruses. It's, in, it's extraordinary. And if you're a scientist, it's a miracle too, because all the life that we know now, based on the best scientific evidence, evolved from very simple um, unicellular organisms. And look at the diversity of life now. Um, bats, elephants, you know, water bears that can survive on space, you know, uh, <laughs> blue whales. It's so extraordinary. So it's a miracle too. So it doesn't matter how you look at it, what your, your faith is. What is clear to me is that we all have to respect our common home. We need to respect all these other creatures we live with on this planet because they have an intrinsic right to exist like, like we do. Unfortunately, we have, we are, have taken over of the planet. And this is why we conservationists have a role which is much more important than ever before. And I see as conservationists as the uh, T cells, as, as the immune system of the planet that now have to react to get, to get, you know, to reduce the bad stuff and, and bring back our health. Enrique, that, that was, I'm sure lots of our listeners will completely agree with you when, when, yeah, you say that we live in a miracle and, um, through times of not really knowing what I believe, that's definitely something that's stuck with me. <laughs> um, I'm wondering about where you've seen that in the ocean though, because obviously the name of your project is Pristine Seas. And I find that a little bit jarring because all the images of the sea that I that I see are, you know, of like plastic bottles washed up or you hear a lot about microplastics in the ocean and, and all that kind of stuff. Is it possible to actually find places where the sea is pristine? And what is your experience of them? And um, yeah, do you see kind of that miracle there as well? We are now entering into the a terrain that is, you know, between semantics and metaphysics now. <laughs> what is pristine, right? Pristine is 
are defined by the dictionary is uh, in its original condition, right? But because there is nothing permanent in the universe, there's nothing permanent in life. You know, what is original, right? It, it was the Precambrian original before complex multicellular life. Was it 50 years ago where some of us were, you know, seeing the world for the first time? Was it before humans go to a place? So there is a lot of debate about this, but to me, pristine is a place where all of the species live there in sufficient abundance so they can self-replenish their populations. And it's a place where all the biodiversity that was there before humans got there is still there. And the place is able to, is resilient to our impacts. Now, the problem is that we have globalized our impact so much that no, we go on these expeditions to the most remote places in the ocean. We've been to the Russian Arctic, to Antarctica, to islands in the middle of the Pacific. That if you look at Google Earth and put that island in the middle, you don't see any other land. It just you just see water all, all around. And we have collected water samples in every one of those places. And in 80% of them, we have found microplastics that that are generated by human no human um, trash. So if pristine means that there is no sign whatsoever of human presence or the human footprint, then there is no place in the ocean that is pristine anymore. Also, ocean warming and acidification because of global warming is affecting all of the ocean as well. Some places faster than others. But there are places I would say are near pristine where you jump in the water and you are immediately surrounded by sharks. 12, 15 sharks, they come and, and look in a circle you and, and look at you. And after a while they get bored and eh, no, not worth um, risking our tails, you know, to try to uh, nip that, that weird thing that has one big eye and <laughs> makes a lot of noise and bubbles, right? And then you look at the bottom and all of the bottom is covered by live coral. And in some places there are so many fish that you cannot even see the bottom. Uh, there are still places like this. Uh, we are very lucky we've been to places like the Southern Line Islands in Kiribati in the middle of the Pacific or the Galapagos Islands where you know, Darwin Island, the northernmost island in the Galapagos, very few people go there, but it's the sharkiest place in the solar system. It's extraordinary. You know, you go down and you have to, you know, this is not for the novice diver. You go down, there is this place called the Darwin's Arch, which actually the arch collapsed um, because of natural erosion last year. So you go in this very exposed place, the northernmost island in the Galapagos, hundreds of miles from, from the mainland. And you, it's a place with a strong currents. So you go down and, you know, <laughs> hold yourself on, onto the bottom uh, to uh, prevent being swept by the current. And then you just wait. And then you see this little black thing coming from the deep. One, two, three, five, ten, hundred, two hundred hammerhead sharks coming towards you. Now we have this fantastic technology that's called rebreathers. This, this diving equipment that where you don't exhale bubbles, but actually the, your exhale with the CO2 goes back into a canister, which captures the carbon and you have oxygen back into the system. So we can be there down there without making bubbles. And, and or noise. But before, with the scuba gear, of course you exhale bubbles. So when you, the, the hammerhead sharks are pretty shy. 
So when you see the hammerhead sharks coming, you you inhale and you pray, you know, that you are going. This is going to be your your longest uh, <laughs> your longest apnea. So the the sharks come, the sharks come, and there all of a sudden you have 200, 300 hammerhead sharks coming, you know, swimming on top of you, and then you think that you've seen everything. You turn left. And you see this humongous, you know, 45 foot long whale shark, this pregnant female is bigger than a school bus. Just effortlessly swimming against the current. You are there trying, you know, um, clinging on the rug for, for, for your life. And this thing goes that without moving, just goes and cruises in front of you and say, okay, now I can die. I have seen, you know, I have seen everything. So there are still places like this in the ocean. This is why it's so important that these places that are still white, we fully protect them from ourselves. But also these places are going to help to replenish the rest. Because what we have seen around the world is that when you protect an area, the fish come back spectacularly within a few years. And we know that the, the large females produce a disproportionately larger number of eggs, which together with the spillover of adult fish help to replenish the areas around. So we need to have these areas that are set aside like investment accounts with a principle that grows with compound interest and produce returns, this spillover that we'll be able to, to, to enjoy. Yeah. You just, you just lost one audience member and gained one in my family. The one you lost, I won't say who it is, but I might have a son-in-law who is so scared of sharks that just that talking will mean he's switched off. But my my son, of course, did a lot of free diving without any oxygen equipment with whale sharks when he was living on St. Helena. Mm -hmm. And he told me about these astonishing animals and the relationship you build with them when you're diving with them in free diving. And this this female that was following him down and following him up. And Uh. these are transformative experiences, aren't they, that that you have? Absolutely transformative. And then one feels that one is part of something bigger. I, our society, unfortunately, is so, especially here in the United States, is so selfish, especially part of the political spectrum. Uh, it's all about me, my individual freedoms, my right to do whatever I want, right? Regardless of the consequences for other people or the planet. But I bet if we took some of these people underwater, and if these people or to a tropical forest and this, if these people, if everybody experienced something like this, <laughs> you know, we take presidents or ministers to the field with us. We take them down on the submarine or sometimes we take them diving. And as you said, they come back transformed. You see that tough guy who's the, you know, the country leader all of a sudden turn into a little kid again that you can see the, the sense of awe and wonder in their eyes. And th- that's fir- that first hand direct experience with nature is absolutely transformative. And not talking about epiphanies, sometimes it just takes one thing like this, one, one experience like this for people to really understand that, oh, I better do something about this. And I have to say, I mean, far be it from me to disagree with you, uh, Enrique, about anything, but I would make a distinction in one of the things you said when you said it doesn't matter earlier, because I think it doesn't matter at all what people think or believe to share this sense of miracle and this sense that there's something special. And I remember in an American university once talking with a lot of researchers and 
the top ornithologists saying, well, asking me, you know, when I go into a forest, I feel I'm in a cathedral. Why is that? Because out of a secular American framework, the problem was he had that persistent sense of the sacred, but no reason for it. And I, out of my Christian faith, I would want to say, well, there's a reason why nature feels like it's sacred, because to use the verse in the Psalms, a very interesting, unique reference in the Psalms where it says that the world is God's finger work. It's made by his fingers. Not normally it talks about his hand and the power, you know, but here it's his finger work. And I think it really doesn't matter in conservation terms what people believe we're doing the same thing. We have the same sense of the sacred. But for a Christian, it matters because also it's transformative. And the trouble is that most of the Christian churches in the world have stopped listening to nature. They're in cities or they don't have access or they, they don't care. They've been affected by consumerism or individualism. And nature is supposed to call us back to a sense of God. That's what it does. And I think it is transformative. And your, your smallness in front of those things is, is something that, you know, is, puts you in your right place. And it, unfortunately, we have a kind of ecological illiteracy now so widespread, don't we, that, that we kind of lost that. But it's fantastic to hear that you are able to take people with influence to those to those places. And I'm sure it's having a huge impact. That was beautifully put, Peter. Thank you so much for sharing those thoughts. You are a very eloquent man. And I, I couldn't agree more with you. I couldn't agree more with you. Enrique, I'd love to ask you about, you just told us this amazing story about uh, these sharks. Have you had any moments on dives where you've been felt quite scared by what you've encountered? Or I'm just wondering if there's like an interaction you've had with a particular species that's like really stuck with you. No, never. The, the worst thing that, um, the thing we are most afraid of are jellyfish and sea urchins because they, they, you know, that's basically really, uh, once I was thanked so badly by jellyfish in the Mediterranean, there was this massive tide of jellyfish that came, uh, you know, came to the coast, uh, pushed by the wind while we were diving. It was a long dive. When we got in the water, there were not so many jellyfish, but when it was time to get out, I look up and uh oh, you know, the first uh, 20 feet of, of uh, water were just uh, this mass of jellyfish. It was awful. It was so bad. Uh, they had to take me to the hospital to get a, a, a shot because the, the it, I've never been stung by so many jellyfish ever. I, I don't know how many, but it was it was really bad. We have never had a problem with sharks or any big animal, you know, people. Steven Spielberg and, and Peter Benchley with the Joss, the, the, the film and, and the book, they did a really horrible disservice to poor sharks. Sharks are, haven't evolved. They've been here for 300 million years or more. They haven't evolved to kill humans. You know, More people die because of selfies than because of sharks every year around the world. More people kill themselves because they are taking a selfie of themselves, you know, at the top of the stairs of the Taj Mahal or on a cliff, really. Um, on average, only five people are killed by sharks around the world. So more people are killed because of toaster mal malfunction. Um, and once I, I was, I was <laughs> invited to give a talk at the New York Public Library about exploration and risk, right? And people was, of course, they were expecting to hear about diving with sharks and how dangerous it is and do you dive with cages and all that stuff, right? So I <laughs> decided to 
look at things a little more scientifically. And I got an actuarial book from a, an insurance company. And they have, it's amazing, these guys have um, estimated the risk of accidents or death for crazy activities like a fun, uh, must, uh, toaster malfunction, right? So I looked, okay, if I go on an expedition, I take a cab from home to the airport, then I fly, then I get a cab from the airport to the port, I get on a ship, we sail, we dive, we dive with sharks, right? There are lots of different activities. And they had a probability of occurrence of accidents right, for every one of those and thousands of others, right? That's what insurance companies do. <clears throat> and people were so disappointed when I told them that the most risky part was the cab ride from home to the airport. <laughs> like 100 times more dangerous than diving with sharks. That is amazing. Um, I love that story. You could see, you could see their disappointment in their faces like, oh no, this shatters my, my paradigm <laughs> about uh, <laughs> diving with sharks. I think there's something really lovely in what you've just said about the jellyfish and, you know, about seeing the kind of the hammerhead sharks. There's something for me about the kind of sheer unpredictability of the seas and the ocean and um, the the animals that live there in a way that, you know, life is unpredictable, but I feel like in the 21st century, we can kind of, we've sort of managed to make it as predictable as possible. And we sort of live within those, those limits. Um, I did have one more question for you, uh, which was about how you've seen the seas regenerate and become um, economically more viable. Because I know that you, you mentioned in your TED talk that actually, if we give space to the ocean, it will kind of give back to us in terms of yeah reproducing. I was wondering if you could say a bit more about the kind of economics behind um, conservation. Yeah, and I'd like to share a personal story. So when I was a little kid growing up in the Mediterranean coast of Spain, I was fascinated by Jacques Cousteau's documentaries. And I remember these images that he showed us from the Mediterranean from the 40s, even during the Second World War he was filming. People were not fishing much those days. The sea was full of groupers and sea bass, just rays, it was spectacular. But then I went swimming in the 70s in the same sea and there was nothing. Because of, you know, since the advent of industrial scale fishing after the Second World War, people depleted the entire Mediterranean. And I thought that, well, you know, nature is lost. Until I did my first scuba dive ever. I turned 18, 18 and immediately I um, signed for a, for a diving course and we did the stuff in the pool to make sure that uh, you know we can use the gear properly and then we go at sea. And the first dive was at this marine reserve, this nautic area, the Medas Islands Marine Reserve. And I remember jumping in the water and feeling like I was diving into that Jacques Cousteau documentary. The groupers were there and the scorpion fish, and the sea bass, and the sea breams, and the octopus. It was like, oh my God, it's here. And then I realized, wow, another epi epiphany, right? I realized, wow, if we have protected this place for just four years, and look at everything has come back, the rest of the sea could be like this, instead of that desert that we are used to. And over the years, I did more, more studies, and now we have so much evidence from hundreds of marine reserves around the world. And on average, the abundance of fish, the, the tons of fish per hectare 
increases 600% within a decade in, in these reserves compared to unprotected areas nearby. And uh, we already discussed before that, that the spillover effect where the reserves are helping to replenish the fisheries around and the fishermen are, are catching more and doing better. But also tourism. When people knew that when the fish came back, the divers came in, in that reserve in the Meadows Islands, the rumors spread like wildfire. And that was before internet. That was in uh, the first dive I did there was in 86, I think, 1986. Um, and now that reserve, they had to control, um, put a cap on the number of divers because there were too many people diving there. One square kilometer of no-take area produces 12 million euros per year. And it employs directly 200 people locally. And then, you know, let's talk about the economic multipliers with the travel to the place, restaurants, hotels, etc. It's extraordinary. Similar towns... On the, on the Costa Brava, in the Mediterranean, they don't have the fish, they don't have the divers, they have mass tourism that has destroyed their uniqueness, you know, and they are, and they are having a hard time. So uh, the economic benefits of these areas, the net present value of these protected areas, we found that is up to 12 times greater than the business as usual, than the un, 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 unprotected uh, no, scenario. So these marine reserves are good for marine life, they are good for the fishermen, they're good for coastal communities, and they are good for the economy. Yeah, that's fantastic. Enrique, I just wonder if there's any question you wish we had asked you that you would like to talk to. Uh, I'm really happy myself with what we've been able to talk about, but is there anything you were hoping we would ask you or anything you particularly would like to to say to the Arosha community around the world, which thankfully now, thanks to Bob Sluka, we have a pretty vigorous marine program going on. And he was very delighted we were able to finally get you on shore. I mean, that's one good thing about these times. People like you are on shore a bit longer. <laughs> Is there anything you'd, you'd like to add? I, I think that this has been the most delightful conversation. And, you know, with my book, I did many podcasts last year. I think this is my favorite podcast ever. Oh. I'm, 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 I'm serious. I'm serious. I'm, I'm being honest here. Um, and you know, just remind everybody that even though the situation is really bad, especially this summer with these heat waves killing hundreds of people in British Columbia, Canada, because it's too hot, killing billions of marine animals that are exposed at high tide, burning all these forests in Europe and Canada, the United States, even Siberia. Uh, despite the loss of forest in the Amazon because of the, all that um, logging and ranching and mining, despite all of these threats to our planet, you know, I want to continue having hope and faith in, in us. Because, you know, if we give nature some space, and this is a different type of faith, but I, I want to have faith in, in, in the, in the human, in Homo sapiens, in our species, because it's, it's not so difficult. If we give nature just some more space, she will bounce back spectacularly and continue providing for us. And I have seen it myself with my own eyes and everybody will benefit. This is why I, in these times of global pessimism and global crisis, 
I remain hopeful that uh, we we're going to do the right thing. Yeah, and us with you, and you're a very bright light of hope in the world, and uh, I think that's something very special, also that we want to celebrate and. So thank you so much for the time you gave us today. It's really been fantastic. And whether in the Vatican or not, we'll meet again some someplace I know. <laughs> and uh, meanwhile, just keep doing what you do. And if Arosha can support you in that in any way, we, we want to. So thanks so much, Enrique. Thank you so much, my friends, Peter and Bryony. And keep up the good work. What you're doing, you're doing God's work. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Field Notes podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe. And there's more information about this podcast and about Arosha at arosha.org. So do join us next time. Mm-hmm.